and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, you can now support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Backers get lots of benefits, including an ad-free version of the podcasts, attractive mugs and t-shirts, and access to our next live stream on Thursday, the 9th of July. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast and find out how you can keep us in rude health. Now, you may think that Boris Johnson isn't doing very well in this pandemic. There are serious questions, to say the least, about his handling of the crisis. And you might think that with their economy opening up again and no sign of a second wave, France's president would be getting an easier time of it. But you'd be wrong. Emmanuel Macron's approval ratings are below Johnson's and several of his MPs quit recently to form a new bloc in Parliament. With me to talk about what's going on in France is John Litchfield. He's been writing about France for decades and was the Independence Paris correspondent for many years. Hello, John. Hello, Ross. The French think this crisis was mismanaged, but from here, it looks like Macron handled it pretty well. Why are they so unhappy? Uh, well, it might be easier to say uh, when are the French not unhappy. I mean, in my 20 years in France, um, Every French leader has been instantly unpopular. And France, even more than the UK, I think, tends to look inward and dwell on its failures rather than look outward and count blessings. And if they do look outward, it's to compare themselves with Germany. It's a kind of obsessive inferiority complex, uh, which used to take the form of counting the German birth rate, then the German unemployment and growth rates. And now in the COVID crisis, it's been the death rate. And Germany has done so much better than any other countries, but French haven't really looked around and seen that they've done better than most similar European countries. I mean, the, the, the death rate, uh, the total number of deaths at the moment in France is just short of 30,000 um, for a population exactly the same as the UK, which is therefore about half the UK's if you, if you look at the actual excess mortality, which is showing up in Britain. Interestingly, in France, the excess mortality, which you can get also from official figures, is almost exactly the same as the official COVID death toll. So it doesn't seem that there's a kind of hidden death toll in France. Um, so in terms of casualty rate, France has done a lot better. Um, and it's done better, actually, than Spain or Italy, Netherlands, Belgium, Sweden, but substantially worse than Germany, which is what the French tend to look at. And it's true that the French government's got things wrong. You know, it was like we were in Britain, uh, probably a week or so late to lockdown and may have locked down now a little too hard. It tested sort of scandalously little at first uh, because it didn't have the capacity to, to do the tests or, or study them. And the government was quite honestly misleading about why it was not doing them for a couple of weeks, similar with face masks and other PPE. But it got many things right. You know, the hospitals were never swamped except briefly in Alsace, which was one of the worst hit parts of France or the worst hit part of France for a long time. Crisis was really confined to the north and northeast, Paris area, Alsace, a little bit in, in Burgundy. Whole areas of France, normally where I am, Brittany, southwest, centre, the Côte d'Azur, hardly been touched by the virus, really. And the death rate in some departments, including my own, Calvados, has actually gone down in the last two or three months rather than up. So, you know, I think that last night when he was addressing the nation, um, uh, Macron said, you know, the French had done well. He presently said, I have done well. Um, that's been sort of attacked by the French press this morning as him having said, aren't I a good boy? Didn't I do well when no one thinks he did? But overall, I think they've done reasonably well. Um, and the amount of criticism they're getting is hugely disproportionate compared to the performance. 
Was it partly because of the quarantine? Because you mentioned they locked down quite hard and it was certainly a, a quite a tough quarantine, tougher than Britain's. Parks were closed, you know, you had to fill in a form to explain why you were outside and you could only go within a kilometre of your house or flat, I think. How did people react to that in France? No, there was not. By that time, I think it was felt that it was slightly overdue and therefore there was not an immediate um, rejection of the idea of quarantine. I think it was largely accepted and the French were overall very disciplined about that. There was difficulty in enforcing the rules on young people in the multiracial banlieue in the suburbs, certainly. And there was also difficulty in imposing the rules on rich prisons who went off to the country or the coast to their second homes and decided they were on holiday rather than on lockdown. Um, so there were a lot of fines issued for breaking the rules, especially at first. But I think the majority of people, even in areas like this where there was no obvious epidemic, obeyed the rules pretty well. Um, place went really very, very quiet. Country towns, you know, were completely deserted. It wasn't just the, the cities. Uh, how, how did they react? I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal stuff suggesting that the, it was nine weeks of lockdown took quite a toll on marriages. Um, there were some reports of domestic violence, but funnily, or good, I suppose, rather than funnily, the domestic murder rate actually fell. The number of road accident deaths fell enormously um, as a result of the fact that people weren't able to drive. And the, the death rate amongst young men in France in the last two or three months is 20% lower than normal. Um, so I think it's the same as in other countries, really. Lockdown was actually kind of fine for, for the middle classes and above, people who could work at home, people who had space in which to live, a garden, but a terrible strain for people who had a small space in a large family. So it's, in a sense, exposed social and racial divisions in the country, as maybe it has in other countries as well. I was listening to uh, Macron this, uh, this morning or watching his address, and he now talks about wanting the French to unite patriotically, which, you know, in a way is so much rhetoric. But how, how much of the grievance, grievances that the Gilets Jaunes were, were so angry about last year, how, mu how much of the, many of those have been addressed? Or are those still very much exposed and very raw in French society? Well, I, I think one of the reasons why Macron came into this crisis on the back of two other crises is not, I don't think any French president in the Fifth Republic has had three consecutive crises like he had. First of all, there was the Gilets Jaunes, as you say, the Yellow Vest, and then there was a big series of protests about his attempts to reform the pension system. And then it, it sort of segued directly in, into this crisis. So he came... Out of, out of a sort of period of unpopularity, almost of rejection. And in fact, his, his popularity has gone up um, during the COVID crisis. Uh, what is bizarre at the moment, uh, really bizarre, is his overall popularity ratings vary from poll to poll, but it's about 40% in the more reliable polls, which is higher than it was a year ago. But his prime minister, uh, Edouard Philippe's rating has gone through the roof. It's up in the sort of mid-50s. That's the opposite of what's supposed to happen in France, as you may know. The prime minister is supposed to be the kind of whipping boy or a sort of fuse system who's can be thrown away when unpopularity rises in the country and the president carries on. Uh, but it's Edouard Philippe who's getting all the praise for doing things that people say were done wrong. And Macron is getting the blame for doing those same things. It's a very, you know, it's a very personal reaction against Macron rather than anything to do with specifically what, what's gone wrong in the country, I think. Is it to do with the Gilets jaunes? I mean, in fact, the Gilets jaunes crisis had essentially abated. You know, it, it, I think it's often misunderstood outside France and often within France. The original Gilets jaunes 
protests were very much a provincial protest, small towns, outer suburbs, sense that they were being left behind, the sense that there was a successful front which, which, um, which neglected them, which insulted them, which, um, which cheated them in, in terms of taxes, um, all to do with high petrol prices at one time and diesel prices. Uh, that, although it's still there slightly, that protest kind of abated quite a long time ago and was taken over by a sort of much more hard left anti-capitalist mo movement, which included some of the same gilets jaunes, but also people who were sort of much more urban, metropolitan, uh, hard left. And so that was sort of still stumbling on um, just before this COVID crisis began. But I, I think the, you know, the reaction to the, the failures as such as they were of the French government in this crisis had less to do with that. More with this, as I say, a sense of France always looking in at itself at its failings rather than counting its blessings abroad, we're comparing to abroad. But also there's a kind, there is a sort of uh, visceral dislike of Macron amongst many people in France, which is partly unjustified, partly something about his character that they don't like, the fact that he's so young, partly that he doesn't come over as being presidential in the kind of marinated in failure way that French presidents used to be. So he's he's getting a kind of unfair rap in some ways, um, but um, you know it's um, I think that's sort of normal French politics in, in other respects. One of the interesting things for me about French politics is the way that the parties are always reinventing and renaming themselves. It's very fluid, unlike in Britain, where you basically had Tory and Tories and Labour in the last hundred years or so. They're very fluid, but at the same time, they have a very clear idea of left and right. And Macron has always tried, has, has tried to position himself as a centrist, and that hasn't gone down very well at all in France, has it? No, it hasn't. I think, you know, it's the fate of centrists everywhere to be hated by all sides and only have a relatively slender, rational, but not very passionate support base of your own. I think that's especially true in, in France, uh, in the sense that, France does still think very tribally, left and right. I mean, the, the terms left and right, as you know, were invented in France about, according to which side of the Assemblée Nationale people first sat after the revolution. Um, so uh, it has been very difficult for Macron to persuade people that left and right don't mean anything anymore. Marine Le Pen tries to make the same argument in a, in a very different way. Uh, maybe she has a bit more success in some ways than he does. But... Uh, I don't think it's true to say he's not disliked, he's only disliked on the left. He's also extremely disliked on, on the centre-right by people who probably agree with most things he does. Can't say why they disagree with him, but just, as I say, have a visceral dislike of the fact that he's upset that the, as you say, the system where there were these great families of centre-left and centre-right, which always essentially control the, the, the fate of the country and the whole of the system of politics was set up to produce out of a whole raft of candidates in the first round, two candidates in the second round who would always be the centre-left, centre-right champions. Um, that has been overturned, not just by Macron, it's been overturned by the rise of the far right in, in recent years, but Macron completely overturned it last time, as you know, by uh, and the fact that he got in the second round with Marine Le Pen meant that neither of the main families of centre-left or centre-right, as if like, neither Labour nor Tory, Tories were we're even uh, contesting the the, 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 the the general election in Britain. And a lot of people on the centre-right still haven't forgiven Macron for that. Um, and centre-left feel that he came from their family and that he is, has turned out to be extraordinarily 
they would say ultra-liberal or ultra-capitalist, which I think is also a misconception of what Macron is. What it, where is Macron? Actually, I mean, it's very, very difficult to make the comparisons, I think, with Britain, um, because the French political spectrum traditionally has been skewed quite far to the left of where the sort of fulcrum would be in Britain. It's changed a little, but, I, you know, I'd say Macron on most things would probably not disagree much with a Tony Blair or even a Keir Starmer. On many economic issues, uh, European issues, uh, he might be even more statist, interventionist than they would be. French terms, he's definitely more to the right than the left. Um, although, he, as, he, as, he, as you say, he normally came from the centre-left side of politics. And he's visiting London this week, isn't he, for an anniversary of uh, Charles de Gaulle. And you were, you were telling me earlier that he's much more popular abroad than he is at home. Yeah, he's, he's extremely popular with all French people living abroad. Um, it's interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, it's my experience 22 years in France is that French people who, who have lived abroad, who have a connection with abroad, are far more open-minded and um, more practical-minded than people who, who are sort of only have ever lived inside France. I suppose you might find that in, in many other countries. So his reasons for coming to Britain are not that. He, he got a lot of his support, financial and otherwise, in the last election from uh, French people living in, in the US and Britain and in other countries. But um, he's coming to Britain because it's the 80th anniversary of General de Gaulle's uh, broadcast through the BBC to the French nation to carry on resisting the Germans after they were defeated in, in 1940. So, yeah, it's an 80th anniversary. It's a, it's a reasonable thing to... Um, to commemorate, he's being accused of trying to sort of drape himself in de Gaulle's mantle by coming. Um, even Marine Le Pen claims to be more Gaullist than him, which is absurd given her family really uh, and her party uh, completely steeped in anti-de Gaulle hatred sent from back from the, the days of Vichy, but also the Free Algeria movement. So everyone's trying to claim to be de Gaulle these days without really ever stopping to ask what de Gaulle stood for much or, or what he, he, how he would have, how he would have coped with the present uh, complications of, of politics in France. So that's the reason he's coming to Britain. Um, it's not a state visit; it's just a very brief visit. I think he's going to be uh, met by uh, Prince Charles, and he will obviously make some kind of a statement about the importance of de Gaulle and the historical importance of the moment. There have been Black Lives Matter protests in France too um, and a lot of them are focused on the death of Adama Traore in 2016. Tell us about what happened to him because it was a case not totally dissimilar um, to George Floyd in the US. Yeah there are similarities Ros but I think um, nothing like as clear-cut to me as the, as the, as the George Floyd case. Uh, Adama Troy was 24, um, Malian origin, but born in, in Val d'Oise, northeast of Paris. Uh, in July 2016, he was with his brother, who, who was wanted by the gendarmes for fraud, and they tried to stop both of them. The brother was arrested. He ran away because he didn't have his identity papers with him, he said. He was caught by one gendarme, escaped. There were scuffles in which a gendarme was injured. He was finally pinned down by three gendarmes on top of him, holding down in, in a belly down, so prone position, which is much used by the French police for, for um, resisting um, uh, people that they want to arrest, uh, for stopping people who are resisting arrest. 
he apparently said, I can't breathe in exactly the same way that George Floyd did. And then he was taken into custody and he died a few hours later. And there have been maybe, I don't know, more than half a dozen conflicting medical legal reports over the years. One suggested that he died from an underlying heart condition, overexertion, the effects of cannabis. Another, that gendarme's rough treatment did lead to his death. Um, and his sister has been leading a Justice for Adama movement for, for four years, but it only really took off after the killing of George Floyd. And he has become the symbol of Black Lives Matter in France. As I say, it's not as clear a case uh, as the George Floyd one, but in my mind, and you know, I've covered these things over many years, there are some French police, more police than gendarmes, who, who are racist and treat racial minorities badly. I mean, for those who don't know, the gendarmes tend to... Um, are police the rural areas and small towns in France and don't come across maybe racial minorities as much, although they do a little, as in the case with, of, um, of Traore. From uh, my, my experience, it's the police who are the real problem rather than the gendarmes in France. Two thirds of them actually voted for Marine Le Pen and the Rassemblement National, that's a, or what the Front National uh, is, is called now, in 2017. There's a lot of tension in France between, even more so I think than in Britain, between the police and the people, isn't there? Well, you know, I, I think one of the interesting, there, has, there is a police problem in France, if you like. I, I don't think it should be exaggerated, maybe. In my experience, the police in France now are probably more professional and less violent than they were 20, 30 years ago. Uh, they certainly still are violent, and there was quite a lot of violence in, in the Gilets Jaunes demonstrations as well, but a lot of that was begun by the Gilets Jaunes and their allies rather than by the police. Um, I, I think the interesting thing, what most people, I think, want out of the present protest is a recognition that there is a problem of police attitudes towards minorities in, in the suburbs and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, do two-thirds of French police vote for national? I mean, you see different figures on that. It was 40% in, in the first round of, of the last election, but that was double the... the um, the, the, the support for Marine Le Pen in the country as a whole. So yes, um, you, you can say that there is a sort of strong far-right feeling in the police. Perhaps even more worryingly recently, it was revealed by by various media in France that there were two very big Facebook groups, which are for police and for gendarmes, 8,000 members in one, 7,000 members in another. So something like one in eight or nine French police officers were belong, belong, belong to these groups, which were extraordinarily racist, even white supremacist in their tone and the kinds of um, horrible messages which were being exchanged. So you can't say, as the right side of French politics tends to do, there is not a problem with racism in the French police. Last time, you, uh, you can't say, I don't think either, that the police is a racist institution in France. Last night, um, Macron tried to sort of, you know, balance himself between the two, saying, absolutely, we absolutely will not tolerate intolerance in France um, and that all forms of racial discrimination will be cracked down on. But then went on to say that the police and the gendarmes were the, you know, the rampart which defends the republic and didn't directly get into the question of whether the French police are racist in any way. But the... Interior Minister, who comes finally un underneath Macron last week, int introduced a fairly tough set of new policies to try and prevent or control uh, racist incidents at the police. He introduced a system whereby in future, what he calls any 
verified suspicion of racism. I'm not sure what verified suspicion means, nor, nor is anyone else. Um, the, a, a police officer or gendarme who has a verified suspicion of racism would be immediately suspended. He also banned another form of control, a sort of strangling neck hold, uh, but not the, the not the not the, uh, the method that was used by the gendarmes to control uh, Adam Traore. That was not banned. Um, and he also, interestingly, which is I think quite an important point, said that the two agencies which investigate police and gendarme uh, alleged uh, crimes or alleged misdoing would be made more independent than they have been until now. So they are trying to move towards the kind of demands made by the people on the street. But, you know, quite honestly, a lot of those people, especially the people who are more violent at the weekend, who turned out on, on Saturday, looked very much to me like the kind of the same people from, from the, the far left movements who, who joined out to and hijacked the Gilets Jaunes movement over the last couple of years. And their interest in police violence in the banlieue is probably quite small in the end. They're just sort of anti-police and anti-state. So, it, you know, it's going to be a difficult thing to control, I think, now that it's begun. John, thanks very much for joining us. Listeners, there's another bunker tomorrow. And don't forget, you can watch our last live stream if you sign up as a Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. We'll see you there. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.